0: Hello and welcome to the Becker's Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC plus the Future of Spine virtual event. I am Laura Dierda, Editor-in-Chief of Becker's Spine Review and Becker's ASC Review, and I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Frank Phillips, who is the um, Director of the Division of Spine Surgery at Rush University Medical Center of Chicago, as well as President of the International Society for the Advancement of Spine Surgery dr phillips has spent his career at the forefront of spine surgery and is an innovative leader in the space before i jump into our questions dr phillips could you please tell us a little bit about your background
1: yeah hi laura and thanks for inviting me to be part of this so uh, as laura said it's uh, frank phillips i'm a a spine surgeon in chicago Um, academically i'm part of the rush university hospital system but functionally practice as Midwest Orthopedics, which is really a private practice, so I sort of see spine from uh, both angles—from the private practice angle and the hospital academic angle, both of which have unique implications in the world we've sort of moved into. Um, my practice is a fairly typical spine surgery, probably seventy-five percent degenerative, thirty percent deformity. Um, I've always been intrigued and involved in minimally invasive procedures technologies and also some of the more recent uh, devices that have evolved in uh, motion preservation surgery. So that's sort of my five minute overview of uh, what I am and what I do.
0: Fantastic, well, I'll jump into the questions now. Um, Dr. Phillips, how has the pandemic changed your outlook on the spine field?
1: Yeah, it's sort of a, been an interesting time for I think all the stakeholders in spine I think the next year is going to be challenging for all, all of us And I think we're all looking at the spine world through a fairly uh, challenging sort of uh, through a Tough uh, going through a tough period over the next year. I think, you know, there's no doubt uh, Spine surgery in my mind is going to slow down to some extent. I think patients are afraid of being in hospitals with all the fears of COVID um, I think hospitals are struggling, you know, when, in the days when they were primarily filled with COVID patients and not doing elective surgery. They lost, you know, millions of dollars every week, and that's hard to come back from. And at the same time, you know, manufacturers, device manufacturers have had, had a tough go, but they've uh, lost a quarter of revenue. Um, and hospitals are pulling back. They're not spending on capital equipment equipment now because they've got to conserve capital. So I think it's going to be a difficult year. I think I'm optimistic ultimately. I think we'll get through it. I don't think fundamentals around spine have changed. But I think it's just going to be, and I mean, this is sort of a cliche, I'm sure you've heard it from everybody you speak to, it's going to be a challenging year regardless of your uh, type of practice or where you practice, um, although there's certainly some geographic variation we've seen in how the effects of COVID on spine practices.
0: That makes sense. And where is your practice today at Midwest Orthopedics? Are you kind of um, in that area where you're um, starting to ramp up again? Or or where are you today and where do you expect to be?
1: Yeah, so in Chicago and our practice sort of uh, March and April pretty much totally shut down other than emergent and, uh, you know, uh, emergent and uh, care. So we really were shut down for a couple of months. You know, as of now, I think we're pretty much close to back to normal in terms of certainly how the operating room functions. Me personally, when we came back in May, I just really and we'll talk, I'm sure, about it later, did all my cases in the surgery center for a number of reasons. As of June, I've been pretty much back to full speed at the hospital, um, as well as obviously the surgery center. And I think what we're seeing in our practice you know, There's this sort of ramp up of cases right now because there's been this pent up demand. I mean, I have patients that were originally scheduled in early March and we were rescheduling them sort of every two weeks through this period. So they're very frustrated and they just want to get it done. So I think those patients are sort of just get me done. I need my surgery. I've lived in pain for so long. I've been messed around by the system for such a long time. So I think we're seeing this sort of month to catch up surge. I think then it's going to... We're expecting in our practice sort of a, a bit of a gradual slowdown after that with people that, you know, new patients are more thoughtful about. Do they want to come in? Do they want to do surgery now? So that's how I think we've modeled it in our practice. I think across the board, we've seen sort of similar trends where early on when people get back going, they swamp and then they sort of slow down, and new patients are sort of generally across the board less than we've seen typically. So I think that's what we've seen in our Practice. I think by the end of the year, we'll probably be back to baseline. I would expect, unless obviously new surges and who knows this world we live in now.
0: Absolutely, we kind of have that constant uncertainty hanging over our heads, um, but we can plan for as much as possible for the, those projections. So um, that's that's very interesting. Thank you for laying that out for us. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the technology that you think will be most essential for spine surgeons going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean I think first I guess I'll answer it just as relates to sort of this quote new world in the COVID, post COVID world and then just where spine is in general, you know, not really directly COVID related. So I think you know, I think for me in terms of technology, what COVID's really accelerating is that push towards outpatient surgery centre surgery. I mean, I've already was there and I've done you know, f- lumbar fusions for a number of years in the surgery center. But I think there's been, it's been fairly slow in spine surgery when compared even in our own practice to joints and sports and other areas of orthopedics. So I think the COVID situation is accelerating that. I think a combination of uh, it's more efficient when hospitals have to deal with COVID. And I think there's a real patient fear about going into COVID. COVID hospitals for elective surgery so the surgery centers are representing a good out for both the surgeon and the patient and we've had no pushback from patients coming to the ASCs but we've had people nervous going to the uh, hospital so I think this is going to accelerate spine ASC surgery and I think in terms of technologies Um, It really I think companies and manufacturers really need to put the effort into MIS Technologies that play to the surgery center because I think we were migrating there anyway And this is really going to accelerate it. So, you know, I didn't give there's not specific widgets that necessarily I can point to in that space But I think it's about sort of procedural innovation to enable MIS surgeries in an outpatient setting and part of that is the widget part of it is the overall pain management, which is one of the biggest areas to doing some of those cases in the surgery center you know without sort of rambling on big picture I mean I think we're spying going it's sort of like everything else driven by technology and you know we've all over the last few years seen uh, sort of the robot hype and age and I think obviously that's there to stay and will develop Um, I think personally I think for now robots are more hyped than offer real clinical advantages. I think they just sort of image guidance dressed up with an aiming arm, but clearly they have the potential in the future to really change what we do. And I think the companies that have or are developing robots recognize that. They realize that right now, they don't add much, if any, efficiency and the accuracy that they provide is pretty good with other things that we already use. So I think it's more the promise of what they'll be. I think uh, there's augmented reality technologies that are real and coming out and actually imminent. Um, I think that's pretty cool, because these are technologies with sort of retina display, headset ability to do navigation, which uh, is, plays to the world we're in, because it takes up the need for huge robots or huge you know, 3D imaging machines in limited spaces. Uh, particularly in an ASC where the hour is obviously much shorter, so I think those type of technologies are really going to evolve fairly quickly over the next few years. Is my uh, expectation?
0: Absolutely. Thanks for that overview. And I know that in the ASC as well, the cost structure is a little bit different, and their appetite to be able to um, bring on some of these technologies, I'm sure, is is different from the hospital setting. Do you have any thoughts on um, what you know ASCs need or um, for the device companies and vendors in general are trying to develop a strategy for bringing these things into the ASC space and making their case for them
1: yeah I mean I think a lot of it to be honest I think you're right I mean these huge robots just can't be in an AC the economics are prohibitive right now and you know it's just a tough thing to get into an ASC and make work there so I think they've got to be Sort of more ASC-friendly enabling technologies, like for example the headset with a laptop concept, where you can do navigation, which is real and is actually out there and imminent. So I think the, and much cheaper than a million-dollar robot. So I think those types of technologies will play to the ASC. I think, and I think maybe we'll talk about later a lot of it. The the roadblocks in ASC have to do with the pricing structure, both from a manufacturer point of view and from a payer point of view. And we'll probably get into that. But I think that that needs to be better worked out to really, you know, promote this uh, use of uh, ASC for cases that really belong, in my opinion, in the ASC.
0: Absolutely. That's great insight. Um, My next question is, where do you see your practice one year from now? What do you think will be different? What will be the same?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're all uh, very adaptable. And suddenly, you know, I was freaked out going back to work and, three weeks later it feels like it's back to normal even though it's not but so people adapt quickly i mean i think a year from now honestly practices will look the same i think you know hospitals will look similar i think i believe personally that my practice there'll be more and more surgery in the asc i mean it was sort of going there and i think this has accelerated it Um, so yeah i mean i think what we'll see you know, across the board in terms of practices, I suspect there'll be consolidation. I think a lot of these small three, four, five person practices have had a tough go of it during the shutdown and they're looking for partners and bigger groups to potentially share some of their downside or risk with. So for our practice, which is obviously established practice, a busy practice, I think a year from now to will look pretty similar. Uh, personally, I think maybe more ASC surgery. Um, But other than that, not anything drastically different to what it was three, four months ago.
0: Got it. That's good to know. Um, The next question or two here, I wanted to talk a little bit about value-based care in the spine field. How do you see that evolving? I know it's been something that's been around for a while now, but given the certain circumstances, how do you see value-based care evolving and what are some of the most important investments that surgeons can make in that area um, to prepare?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've gone back and forth on this. I mean, at one point I was sort of, this is the future. We're all in. we got to build, measure, or get all our metrics to be prepared for this. And like you sort of suggesting in the way you phrased the question, I mean, in Spine, it's been a lot of fits and starts. It hadn't really panned out. And it has a lot to do with it. Total joints are pretty much uniform. I mean, every hip replacement looks about the same, although my joint colleagues would probably be offended. But spine, it's just a different animal, you know, like a you know, bundle for a lumbar fusion up to five levels. You know, encompasses so many different pathologies and comorbidities, and that can be a simple lateral fusion to a front, back, side, up and down fusion, and the economics of those are so different. So it's been really challenging, and we've tried within our group to be part of uh, Medicare bundles and really try and embrace value-based care, but it's just exceptionally difficult to do in spine, And it hasn't really taken off like it has in joints or other areas of orthopedics. I I still think the emphasis on the principle of value-based care is here to stay, there's no doubt. but it's a tough thing in spine to execute on i mean obviously payers want to move away from fee for service and you know we at the same time have to prove the value of what we do but a formal sort of value-based program has just been very elusive in spine. some I'm, I'm sort of i think we should collect data and i think it's important all practices do it because if you don't have it you're probably going to be in trouble but uh is it really going to be sort of the future in the way people have talked about it. I'm less certain of that than I might have been three, four, five years ago.
0: Absolutely. That makes sense. And what's your impression of the payer landscape coupled with this, uh, this idea of value-based care? Um, what are you seeing from the payers and how are you seeing any changes related to risk-based contracts, reimbursements um, in the inpatient or outpatient setting?
1: Yeah. So we have, as in our group and at Rush, we have a number of sort of risk-based commercial bundle type arrangements um, and again we've struggled i mean we've struggled to execute on those and again it has a lot to do with variability you can do a one level cervical fusion they leave six hours later another one sits around the hospital for two days so your cost structure and your risk obviously is so varied and partly that can be managed with critical pathways to manage those patients. But part of it is fine by the nature of it. There's just a lot of built-in variability. And I know it sort of sounds like an excuse, but it's just the reality of the patients and the procedures we do. So it hasn't really been a hit for us. We've done it. we participate in some of these sort of shared uh, risk-based contracts. Um, yeah, and they've been okay, um, you know, in general. The reimbursement challenges remain. I think for all spine surgery, it's not got any easier. You know, getting cases approved and the payers, you know, fall back on it's experimental that we're all used to hearing for well-established procedures. So that hasn't necessarily improved. I do think, for me, the biggest challenge, honestly, is. It makes such obvious sense to move cases to the surgery centre environment. The economics to the payers are so compelling, and we struggle with that. Like we still, I still can't get like a fusion for certain payers approved in the ASC. So they're like saying they're literally paying three times the amount to do the same case in the hospital, which just defies logic and economics. So I think there needs to be. A lot of political I guess effort on that to make make that clear so like why would a payer want to pay three times more in a hospital for the same case I think we got to work through that and at the same time the reimbursement right now in the surgery center often makes it prohibitive because those cases by design use more implants or more expensive and you can't do them in a surgery center if you don't have carve outs or appropriate reimbursement so I think that's got to be the biggest change like the reimbursement uh for payers has to be appropriate to make it make it attractive for the surgeons to do those in the asc and at the same time the payers are sharing obviously in a drastically reduced cost and the same is true for manufacturers you know they're uh, terrified they'll sort of cannibalize their products and lose that pre- premium hospital pricing they get if they lower the price in the asc but then at the same time, the price they're offering us in the ASC just doesn't work with the reimbursement we're getting for that case from payers. So I think there needs to be all stakeholders need to figure this thing out for it really to work in the surgery center. Um, so that's kind of the, ch- the, the sort of challenges, I guess, I think about in terms of the contracts and the reimbursement and payer mix and payers issues that we see.
0: Absolutely. I know there's a lot of different constituencies there to think about and types of relationships going into that um, discussion. So I appreciate that. Um, my last question here is, where do you see the best opportunity to grow your practice going forward? I know, um, you know Midwest Orthopedics at Rush has had a lot of different thoughts and explored many options for growth, and I'd love to hear you know, where you're at right now.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think like every every practice or certainly the practices our size, we've uh, You know explored a lot of options that are out there. There's obviously private equity and there's talk that that's going to kind of Expand a little now with some of these groups we talked about that are struggling through this shutdown and no income for months um, No revenue for months. So I think uh, You know, I think we we've sort of looked at that a lot i mean the opportunities that as i said and personally the decision we've sort of faced is do we take money to grow grow our practice because we feel the need to grow our practice i think for all practices ancillaries are becoming a bigger bigger piece of the business right we're getting less in professional fees working harder for less money if we don't fit figure out ancillaries which would include all the usual entries therapy and the likes mri imaging but also surgery centers and so for our practice it's really figuring out a way to do that on scale and we've sort of internally for now made the decision of doing that internally sort of us investing in ourselves so to speak rather than taking outside capital and giving away not only uh, the financial piece but also our brand and what we are which is just inevitable i guess if you're getting someone else who's not necessarily doesn't necessarily share the same clinical goals you might um some outside money in other words so so i think we've decided we have to grow we have to have scale for many many reasons and we've decided to do that sort of through organic growth with partners basically putting in retained earnings and uh, which is obviously not the traditional way orthopedic or medical practices function, and use that to grow our footprint, both in terms of geography and in terms of developing the ancillary streams we, we, we'd like.
0: Absolutely, makes sense. And one follow-up there, do you think this kind of turn to telehealth and ability to connect from further distances will um, be a boon for you when you're looking at growing your footprint or is that not something you've discussed with the partners?
1: No, I mean, I think it's been interesting. When at first we started talking about it, um, I was thinking it's a total waste of time. And as I started doing it, I like fell in love with it. It's so efficient for patients. They love it. I mean, if I'm downtown and a patient comes from the suburbs to see me, it's like a five-hour commitment. Driving in, waiting, I'm two hours behind, all the stuff that goes with that. If I'm on a telehealth at 2 o'clock, I call them at 2 o'clock, they get 30 minutes we talk about. Weather and sports and it's great and it's been shocking to me how well accepted is even for patients uh, wanting surgery. Like I've said, well, you better come in so we can meet face to face. I'm going to do surgery on you. And they go, oh, no, we're okay, doc. So it, I mean, you got to see them to examine them, obviously. But so I think you know the limitation of telehealth will be if payers pull back, right? Because they don't—they're afraid suddenly there'll be a lot more visits than there used to be because telehealth makes it easy. So, uh, yeah, so if telehealth stops getting reimbursed when the dust settles, that'll be a problem. But I agree with you. I mean, I think we've seen real opportunities through telehealth. We can reach, obviously, far wider geography than just sort of the immediate communities we serve. Um, yeah, I think it's going to, as long as it gets paid for, I think it'll uh, expand what we all do. And I think it makes doctors more efficient. You know, you don't have to be running two hours behind. And as I say, it's it's patients really seem to like it.
0: Well, Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Phillips, for this discussion. I really appreciate it. As always, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I look forward to continuing the dis- discussion in the future.
1: Yep, thanks for having me on. Hopefully soon we'll be able to do it all in person, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I'll look forward to that day.
1: Yep.